This is not actually the first time I've preached in a gymnasium before. When I was visiting Baltimore Bible Church, I forget where it was, but I was right underneath the uh, basketball hoop, which is no big deal for me because I'm short. But I did feel the whole time I was preaching like someone was about to dunk on me. Feel a little bit better here. Do feel like maybe we should call a halftime or something like that, though. In this series, we've been talking about a strong Christian community. And if you haven't noticed and looked around, you're part of one. Because whether you worship here or there or there, people band together and they work out whatever needs to be worked out, and it's the people that matter and the truth that matters more than anything else. And you're kind of experiencing that. No, I didn't plan that. But you're an illustration of a strong Christian community listening to the Word of God and obeying the Word of God and seeing what that produces in um, the congregation, whether you're older, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're younger, you're part of this. And uh, you have um, God at work in you. So for the third time, we're going to open now in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, if you would do that. Somehow I can see you better now, so I could tell if you're actually opening your Bibles or not. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we'll see if we can conclude um, this great text describing the early church community and learn some lessons from it. I'll read again, 42 to 47 the end of the chapter. You follow along. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're attempting to make correct applications to our church community from an historical portion that describes how the early church was. Not everything is transferable. These are not prescriptions or commands. These are descriptions. And from that, though, we glean some things we can apply to ourselves, particularly as we relate them to the epistles and see what is commanded of the church and what is expected of the church. If you've been taking notes already, we've gone through uh, several of these descriptions. I'll go over those and review those quickly right now. Description number one from verse 42, if you look back at the beginning, is they were immediately devoted to doctrine. They wanted to learn doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and they were dedicated to it. First thing they were dedicated to is truth of God's word. The second description is they were devoted to the people, to the fellowship. That's also in verse 42, the koinonia, that means the partnership they had with one another, the sharing. And then it goes on to describe what that fellowship was like and what the truth of God they were dedicated to produced. So the third description was they broke bread together. That's also still in verse 42. That means they were partaking of the Lord's Supper as part of their meals together. The fourth description we covered is they practiced corporate prayer And that's at the end of verse 42. We talked about how that literally talks about not being devoted to prayer, but to the prayers, plural, the time of the prayers where they gathered collectively to lift up concerns to the Lord and our need to be doing that as well. And then from last time, fifth, they had divine awe. That's in verse 43. They witnessed the miracles that were not done by all the Christians. They were done by the apostles. It's very clear who were performing those miracles and how they gave testimony to the apostles' word. And so that created a sense of inspiration and awe that the power of God was at work in their midst. And we need to have a sense that God is working in our midst, albeit in different ways. 
Six, they also demonstrated their unity. That's in verse 44. They actually were physically together. And yes, it's important for us to gather together physically. Some people stay apart from other believers. You cannot be a strong believer if you constantly stay apart from other believers. You're meant to be together. God designed you to be with other people physically in a room with them. And so that's what they did. They gathered. Probably their gathering place for the thousands that they had was on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And then seventh, this is still review, they cared for their physical needs. That's towards the end of verse 44 and into verse 45. This was not mandated socialism. Um, God, that would not honor God anyway. But this was love that came from the heart. This was generosity. It was voluntary giving and it was proof of their love and proof that they had received the truth of God properly into their hearts. A lot of times people want to learn theology and debate theology, but if they don't love their brethren... If they don't have a commitment and love in a tangible way, you can tell they haven't yet learned the lessons of Christ. They haven't done well yet in the school of Christ. So today there's even more, and it's meant to inspire us. It's as we look into this and we think about what they actually were, that this is not a fantasy. This was something the Holy Spirit produced in them, that this will hopefully uh, spill over on us and our minds and our expectations as to what our community should be like as we continue to strive to be like this. So this is number eight, the eighth description. And that's in verse 46. Go and stare at that again. I'll read it again. Day by day, it says, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So this description is they were delighted in their spirit. If you looked at the way this church was, this local church had an atmosphere of delight. They were joyful. They were happy. There was delight there. It says they were taking their meals together and they did it with gladness and they did it with sincerity of heart. Now, we already saw that they were eating their meals together. That's because that's natural to do. When you have family members, what do you do with family members? You take a meal together with them. If you have a friend, you spend some time together and you have meals with them. If you want to get to know somebody, you say, hey, let's meet up for a meal and you have a meal together. It's just natural. That's what we humans do. And they were doing that in their church as well. They showed that church was not just for Sunday. They would show up for an hour, but the relationships were important to them and they developed their relationships by having meals together. This is true in our culture. It was true in their culture. But what was true here and the the quality that Luke accentuates here is that they did it with gladness. And I like that. I like that. I like the fact that their meals were times of happiness. Their meals were time of gladness. Actually, though, I think it's a rather weak translation of the Greek term there. I think we might be able to translate it this way better. They had exuberant joy. That's more like it. They had exuberant joy because this is the same word that was used in Luke chapter one and verse 44 of John the Baptist when he was still inside of his mother's womb. Remember that in Elizabeth's womb and Mary comes by and she's pregnant with Jesus. And somehow John, who's a real human being in the womb, he recognizes the presence of his Lord and Savior and he leaps with joy. Same exact word. In fact, if you want another parallel, in Jude 24, in that great benediction at the end, it says, now to him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, and then it says, with great joy. Same, same word that is used here. In other words, their meal times were a great atmosphere. They were not like really too quiet or too drab or too stiff. They were not filled with complaining or, or divisive kind of talking. It was truly joyous to have meals together. I think they laughed. I think they interacted. I think they talked with one another. I think they enjoyed one another. I think it was better than a McDonald's Happy Meal. It had richness to it. It had life to it. They enjoyed each other. They looked in each other's eyes. They wanted to know what God was doing in their life and in your life. They shared prayer requests. They talked about answered prayers. It was people enjoying the Lord and being filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing they had the common life of Jesus with them. The talk was not primarily about weather or about the politics of the day, whatever that might have been. By the way, you can't get too happy when you talk about weather, particularly this time of year. And you can't, definitely can't get happy if you're talking about politics. 
Their talk was not about those things. Their talk was probably about Christ. It was about His kingdom. It was about the things that God was doing. And when you focus on that, guess what? Your mealtime is more joyous. Personality differences were overshadowed by a common love for their common Lord and a common purpose in life. You can go to the best restaurants in Columbia or any other town and you will never find an atmosphere like this. This is something you cannot pay for. This is something money does not buy. This comes from the Holy Spirit with people that are riveted on their Lord, that love their Lord and share their lives together. Outbursts of song and joy probably filled many a home. People passing by in the streets that were not yet believers probably heard what was going on in these homes and they're like, that's strange. Listen to all that celebrating going on inside of there. Check it out, Zachariah. They must be drinking sweet wine a little early. But they weren't. They didn't need any wine. They had a better drink. They were drinking the Spirit of God. The Spirit's fullness made them winsome people. Many people in society, they turn to entertainment to fill up their lives. Wouldn't you agree? They turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They turn to illicit sex. And it looks like it's just going to be so satisfying and so gratifying. And they do it to find happiness. And the more they chase happiness, they only get a hold of that little feller for a little while. And they hold on to him, but he scurries away and they cannot keep their happiness. It doesn't stay. Many people who live to indulge themselves do those things on the weekends. They put their head down. They do the grind Monday to Friday. They, they take care of their studies. They go to work. But when the weekend comes, they're king and they do whatever they want. I don't know if you've noticed how popular the Maryland casino has become recently. It's just... Uh, just constantly packed with people over there. It's so sad. Those are not the things that really bring happiness. Those things trap humanity and and trap humanity into certain kinds of behavior. And they think if they do these things, it will give them freedom. But it's those very things that ensnare them and, and they cannot find any happiness there. The verse in 2 Peter 2.19 says those things and the false teachers that go with them promise them freedom. That's what they want. They want freedom and they want excitement and they want to be released and they chase those things. But it says they themselves, while they promise these, this freedom, are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. Thinking the more they're more free than we are. They look at us sitting here on a Sunday morning, doing what? How could this be exciting, you know? How could gathering with this kind of people be exciting? They want, they want to hear the, the crowds cheer and they want to do extreme things and they chase after those things. Slaves to cheap thrills. They don't gain happiness by that. It's only for the moment. They scream when they're on the camera and afterwards they're, they're bored. I know because I used to be one of those people. They know nothing of the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's such a tragedy if you're a Christian and you don't know the joy of the Holy Spirit because you've been given so much more than them and you don't have to chase after it. It's already inside of you. We have joy and we have been given one another in order to experience that joy. We ought to be sharing that joy with one another, especially at mealtime. Don't you think that's true? Sharing the joy that we have. It's our responsibility to rejoice in the Lord and to share that with other people so they can, they can receive that joy also. There's another little description given in verse 46 of them also. It doesn't just say gladness, but also sincerity of heart. Did you see that? How important that is because the devil goes after those that are not sincere in their religion. Now, when we hear the word sincere in English, we think of someone who's honest and true in whatever goodwill that they're expressing, right? Some people practice generous acts for other people, and we say, well, that seemed like a sincere offer or a sincere gift. But some people are not sincere. They give to get something back, and you don't know that until you watch them for a while. They look for recognition. They look for popularity. They want to get in with some group. They want some status among them. And so they appear to be generous and they give, but they stop giving and they stop generous when they don't get what they want. And you see that also. And then, you know, that's not, that's not true love. That's disingenuous. Well, the Greek word here actually brings out the idea that of, of not just sincerity, but the idea of simplicity. That's actually what the word means. It talks about being single, not double-minded in what they were doing. 
They are sincere in the sense that they're simple. They're not cluttered with a lot of motives. They, they just were there together to enjoy one another, and they really didn't have any other kind of motives. They were not trying to get rich off of the congregation, or they're, they're not trying to jockey themselves into some position. It was single-minded. It was genuine. Their hearts were sincere because they were unhindered before the Lord. They served and they worshipped in this community with simplicity. There were no ulterior motives. There was an absence of pretense in what they were doing. They were not, in other words, performing a religion. They were living sincerely. Praising God, giving money, meeting together with other believers, listening to the word. All the things they did in their fellowship was not a show. It was not a put on. It's what they wanted to do. There was joy and it was genuine, and they lived it in front of others. Some of you read in the Washington Post that the church that used to preach here at Athelton High School that we took over from here and who took over our rental place at Oakland Mills recently gave away five cars to random people on a Sunday morning who showed up to church. Wouldn't that be nice, huh? Give away five cars to people. The pastor touted that strategy as good to get people to come to church. If they know we're giving away cars, maybe they'll come. But beloved, that kind of thing breeds insincerity in religion. That's not sincerity coming to love Christ. Clearly, there are other motives that are mixed in there with that. When there's good doctrine and it's taught to the church regularly over and over, people hear clearly about the amazing Jesus Christ They realize he's true. They realize he's the treasure. Not a brand new car, not a trip somewhere. He's the treasure. He's the reward. He's the joy of life. He can't be bought. He has to be bowed down before. And when you do that, you get everything. You get all the inheritance. You have everything. He's he's blessed you with everything. And that's just amazing. Christians who go the health and wealth false teaching route. They're starting to bring in things into the church that are going to hurt the church, not help it. 1 John 3, 1 tells us a little glimpse into John's heart, probably when he was an older man. He said, see, actually, I like the other translation. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And then he goes on and says, we don't even know what we're like, for we haven't even really seen us yet in our glorified state. And then he says, we know that when he appears, not if, but when, when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself. That's the beatific vision. When we see Christ, the sight of Christ and the power of Christ will be so great that seeing him will transform us into his image. I can't even imagine the power that will be exerted. Our sonship will be revealed. Our inheritance will be given in full. There'll be no regrets for anything that we gave up for Christ in this life. Joy, people. Joy in our future. Joy in our present. That should characterize us. In Acts 13, 52, it says of the Gentile disciples in Jesus, they were continually filled with joy. Does that describe you? They were continually filled with joy. You say, well, how can I get there? Because of the next clause. They were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You want joy? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you yield not to your own will, but to the will of God, it may seem like you're giving up something, giving up your rule. Don't be fooled. There's nothing that you can do to give yourself eternal joy. You can't do it. You can never fulfill your life that way. The only way you can get joy is to get it from God. And God gives it when you yield to the Holy Spirit he put inside of your life. When you yield to him and do what he wants in your life, you get joy. I like to say, when you chase after happiness, it's too scurry of a little rabbit. You can never catch that little thing. But if you just stand still and do what the Lord wants, that little rabbit, that little happiness will climb up right on your lap and sit there for you to pet all you want. Because God brings joy to you. When you don't chase it, you just do what he tells you to do. I'm sure you've seen many of those bothersome and repetitive pharmaceutical commercials these days where they bring up, 
you know, this, this drug that you can take and they have the beautiful picture in the family running together and all of that stuff. And then, and then they tell you all the bad things that could happen if you take this thing. And they, they whiz through that really fast. And one of the things they say as a byproduct is you might die. No big deal, though. Small percentage. Well, there's the only byproduct for giving up your life to letting the Holy Spirit have more of you. The only, the only thing you have to worry about is having too much joy. That's the fine print. Joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you want those things in your life? That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? J-O-Y. I feel like doing that, you know. Give me a J. (laughs) But we, we won't go there. Jesus brings joy. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.16 commands us, rejoice how often? Always. Rejoice always. There's, we can be sad for others and weep with those who weep, but then we always have that joy burning in our hearts. Satan is constantly trying to divert our attention away from eternal truth. He's the one who wants to rob you of the joy God has given you. It's not the Lord who's a killjoy. It's Satan. Jesus told his disciples right before he was going to be arrested, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. People ask, was Jesus a happy person? He just finished saying, my joy could be in you. Of course he smiled. Of course he was happy. Of course he had joy. And then he said, and that your joy may be made full. He wasn't trying to keep you from anything. That's the devil's lie. Now, how does all this relate to the community? Because when you come in the community, it should be a place where you increase in joy. You had a tough week, but you're looking at someone else. You look in their eyes. They talk about the things God is doing, or they had a tough week also, and still they're praising the Lord, and you're thinking, and I'm grumbling with my situation? I remember how hard it was in seminary. I remember sitting next to this um, Chinese student. He was trying to trying to learn English and learn Greek at the same time in an English seminary. And I thought I had it hard. And he was rejoicing. Amazing. Of all the people in the world, Christians should be most envied because of their joy. How do you stay happy all the time, Christ? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Is that you? I don't want to be rich and famous. I really don't. Um, I would hate all the sycophants, you know, coming by and saying, Oh, oh, I want to get to know you. Wouldn't that be terrible? How insincere that would be. It's better just to know who are sincere people and have them as your friends. Don't you agree? In Christ... You and I have an untouchable celebration. And if you don't, it's because you're not full of the Spirit. We have an untouchable celebration all the time. You could be locked up in prison. Paul and Silas, right? What were they doing? Singing praises. Untouchable celebration. You can't put it out. You can't blow that candle out. You persecute them, it gets greater. It's amazing. The apostles got flogged in Acts and they're saying, we're worthy to be persecuted. They couldn't snuff out their joy. It's amazing. It's supernatural. I get to serve the king of kings. You get to serve the king of kings. Yes? What's, what's better than that? All right. I want to stay on that one longer, but we got to move on. The ninth description. Ninth description of this community, is that they were praising God in worship. Verse 47, praising God in worship. The wind's blowing my pages around up here. I find myself back to Acts 2. They were praising God. Praising God and having favor with all the people, it says. Wow, how does that go together? Praising God and having favor with all the people. The word praise, aneo, means to lift up. It's the same word that is going to be used when we get to Acts 3 and verse 8. And it says Peter reached down and he grabbed the lame man and he healed him and he pulled him up. He lifted him up. That's praise, to lift up. We lift up God. We can't lift up God because he's already high. He's already on the highest throne. We don't actually physically lift him up, but we lift up his name. We lift up his character. We lift up his wonderful deeds. We put them up high so people can see them and people can hear about them. That's praise. 
The church in Jerusalem looked around at all the things that were going on, and they were not praising themselves, but praising God. When a church starts saying, hey, look what we did, they're going to lose it all, right? Because we didn't do anything. The whole community was oriented toward God. They were God-centered. By the way, that's what it means to be godly. Your life is oriented towards God. You're not, you're not worldly, you're godly. You don't live for the world, you live for God. You, you constantly think every single day, how do I live for God? How do I do my best for God? How do I honor God? How do I speak in public for God? How do I make sure I'm known as a person of God and not hide that? Another way to put it is that, that this community was not man-fearing, they were God-fearing. They were not self-esteeming. They were Christ-esteeming. Does that make sense? They were not psychologically oriented, trying to find a way to find balance in their life or to have a healthy self-image. They just wanted to praise God. They were centered on God. When you center on God, you reverence God, love God, somehow everything just gets imbalanced in your life. The church existed to exalt the head of the church, not make humanity feel good about themselves. And so praise was a well-known characteristic of this, this group. And worship should be, as we see it here, an overflow of the community's fixation on all of the doctrines and truths that they were learning. They constantly heard that God was a great God, that he had sent Christ and so he was a good God, that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecies and so he was a faithful God. What attribute of God do you think of now? Whatever that attribute is, it's a wonderful attribute, isn't it? They were learning that attribute and they were praising the Father. If you read your Bible properly, when you're reading it, any portion of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, whether you're in Revelation or the Gospels, if you're reading your Bible correctly, you will see that ultimately there's only one hero in the Bible, and that is God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes? Church, churches, I think, become more worldly when they become more man-centered. How can we please people? How can we make people feel more at home? How can we do this for people? When we're focused on ourselves, we die. It's death. It seems so appealing, and churches seem to grow like that, but it's so important to stay focused on God. I know their rationale. Their rationale is they want to become more relevant to the culture, so they turn to the culture and start to act more like the culture, so when the culture comes in the front doors, they feel at home. Ironically, churches that become more like the world in order to, to be more relevant to them become less relevant to them, because the world ultimately says, I already have all of this. Why do I even need to come to church? And that's what a lot of people say now. I could go out and be a good person and give to the poor on my own. Why do I have to go to church? The church didn't explain to them why you should be in church. It's all about God, not you. Frankly, churches like that have forgotten their entire reason for existence. The only community of believers that is relevant is the group of people who points men to the true God and says glory in Him and follow Him. Not come get rich. But pick up your cross and follow after Christ. The world behind me, the cross before me. That was this group as well. And that, I think, is certainly transferable to us. Tenth description. I'm running out of time. I know it. I haven't seen a clock yet. All right, there we go. Tenth description. They were distinguished in the community. The larger community, that is. This church, this local church, was distinguished in the larger community. That's also in verse 47, where it says, praising God and, and this is kind of amazing, it might even be hard to believe it's in there, having favor with all the people. People, laos. As I mentioned previously in a previous message, this is a reference to those outside the church, not the believers. But the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish outsiders who were looking in at this very large community now, and it was saying the church, this mega church, now into the thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, they had favor with all of the people on the outside. There's a greater community that surrounded the smaller community of Christians. Even though it was a large church, it was still smaller than the greater Jewish community. That greater Jewish community, at least at this point, thought very highly of them. This is amazing. And they thought highly of them, not because the church had conformed themselves to the world or had the world's priorities or wanted to please the world, but because the people were sincere and glad. They had integrity. 
They really believed what they were saying. They probably worked hard. They loved one another. They saw the giving that was going on. They, they would have overheard some of the praise. They saw this is true devotion to God. It was a righteous community. It was a loving community. It was attractive. The community was attractive. It was attractive even to unbelievers. Good lives are commendable. And sometimes unbelievers look at good lives and they say, I wish I was more like you. Although they don't want to count the cost, right? Jesus had this happen to him. In Luke 2, 52, it tells us of young Jesus that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Grew in favor with men. And this early Jerusalem church was an attractive church, a joyful church. Remember, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, they'll look and they'll see, well, they're loving one another. They're sharing gifts with one another. They're forgiving one another. They're caring for one another. They're sticking by one another. They're there for one another when the, when the need is there. They help one another when they're hurting. When you do that, that's attractive. That's hard to find in the world. They really do care. They really do give. They were in the world, but they were not what? Of the world. They didn't become like the world. They didn't want to be like the Jewish unbelievers. They'd already tried that. They'd already gone that way, been there, done that. They didn't want it. And they reached out in mercy to lost souls. They were able to do that without being stained by the sin of the world. You remember the advice in Jude 23? It says, on some unbelievers have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Watch out when you're outreaching that you don't get polluted yourself. They outreached without conforming to those they were trying to reach. They kept their community strong. And so they experienced this time of living at peace, even with the rest of Jerusalem, even being favored by them. Now, Again, this is why we say what we're reading is history. It's not prescription, it's description. Because even for them, even with their church, without changing their message or the way they lived, they fell out of favor with people eventually. Persecution eventually came to this church. The Life Application Commentary kind of explains it well. It says this. Unfortunately, such favor does not always last for long. For those who admire the life of Christians soon come to realize the implications of their message. They realize they are being challenged to make a decision about adopting Christianity and rejecting their own cherished religion. Vested interests of some powerful groups become jeopardized. Thus, admiration is replaced by fear and opposition. That's what happens. They admire you and then they turn on you. They say, wow, you guys got something going there. And then they mock you when they join others. Even in our society, when Christians give to the poor, we are commended. But when we condemn false religion, when we condemn sexual perversion, we're labeled backwards and intolerant. But they are the ones who really are backwards and intolerant. We cannot look to them to tell us what we must be like. We cannot say, well, now we're getting popular with the community. Let's keep this going. You can't look to them and what they like to conform the church on the inside. We have to be true to Christ. Sometimes we'll have favor with them. And sometimes we'll go through a time of persecution, right? But we stay the same. We look to the scripture and we look to ourselves to know how we are to behave. The media is not really on our side. Hollywood's not on our side. The public schools are not on our side. They tolerate us to some extent. They're not really with us. They don't really understand who we are. They don't know what we're about. They don't understand this movement of the church. They don't get it. We don't look to them in order to find our peace. We do what we're supposed to do. And if God gives us peace with them, then praise the Lord for that. If God gives us persecution, we learn through that too. We carry a heavy message. This is not a simple little message. This is a message of judgment. Yes, it's a message where we outreach to the world and we say, do you want to be saved? But there's a threat involved with this. Did you realize that? When someone turns their back on Christ, there's the threat of judgment. You will be judged by God. When the conservative church condemns various kinds of sinful behavior, sexual promiscuity or whatever it may be, 
And we don't practice also at the same time love for people. They get the wrong idea about us, though. So we need to make sure we stay winsome, we stay joyful, but we don't look to them to know how we're supposed to behave. In other words, there's a full array of Christ's attributes we need to display. We need to be angry when God is angry. We need to have the righteous indignation of God. But we also need to be, we need to be patient with people as well. We need to be controlled in our speech and not say things in the harshest manner that we can. We also need to have a lot of love and mercy when we work with people that are, not, that are, that are clearly mocking Christianity and Christ. We have to have the full range of the attributes of God active in our community whether it is his goodness or his severity, whether it is his justice or his mercy, that has to be seen in a congregation and then will be attractive. We have had here at Hope Bible Church over the years some supposedly very well-taught people, taught in the Bible well, as they would say. People who were, that had a background in Bible churches and they would come here and they were constantly critical of things. They were criticizing You know, this thing and that thing, no matter what you do with some people, you cannot please them. People like that are hard to get along with. And people like that do not make a good Christian community. They have a graduate degree in complaining, but they haven't got out of kindergarten and learning to love people. It's so easy to sit and say, this is going wrong and that's going wrong. And this person should have done that. That person should have said this. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. Anybody can sit in the stands and not get in the game, right? Anybody can do that. But when you're in there working and serving, that tends to humble you and you realize how hard it is to be a true and genuine Christian and you're more gentle and you're more patient with the the failures of other people around you. That kind of community attracts. You can't just be a community. We can't just be a community that denounces sin. We have to be a community that winsomely attracts people because we're patient and because we're gentle and because we're kind. So there's some people out there, I'm convinced, There are some unbelievers out there. They want to be part of a community that has all these attributes. They want to be part of a winsome community. They really do. They're looking to see whether this is genuine or not. They're going to kick the tires sometimes and say, are these people really real or is this a show? You know, the cults take advantage of this all the time. The cults give people who are kind of lost and lonely in the world, they give them a sense of identity, don't they? They see this tight-knit group of people that are going to a a, a Jehovah Witness temple or they're going to a Mormon church or something like that. And they see, wow, these people are hanging out together and they're close together. But when you get in there, you realize that there's a lot of control that's going on there. And and minds are not allowed to study and ask the questions that they want. They're not allowed to really, really get in and know God's word. They're controlled and they're led in a certain direction. And if they don't go that direction, there's, there's pressure that's put on them because they're already weak when they came to the cult. They have a hard time getting out of it. When people come to this community, we shouldn't say, well, we don't want to be close because we don't want to look like a cult. Of course we want to be close. We want to be very close. We want to overcome all those things we talked about in the first message on this, the traffic and the the job and all those things that take our time and drain our energy. We want a community like that. It's just that when people come in, they need to realize it's genuine. No one is controlling you. It's truth. Let the truth control you. Let them see that it's all true. Let them see the difference between true religion and phony religion. And last, we come to the last description of this incredible group. And that is that they were growing dramatically. Do you see that also? Oh, I've got to flip back. They were growing dramatically. Praising God, having favor with all the people. And look how Luke concludes this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Take note of that last part of that verse, please. This is remarkable. This is a joy to read. Many, day by day, were getting saved. Of course, the salvation that Luke is talking about is spiritual salvation. They were getting saved because they were believing in Jesus as Lord. They didn't jump in right away. They sat back. Some people are like that. They had more questions. They wanted wanted to look at this whole thing a little bit longer. They maybe studied the prophets a little longer, and they they were not part of that initial burst of 3,000 people that got saved at the end of Peter's incredible sermon. But... They kept watching, they kept listening, and along the way they said, I'm ready to believe, I'm ready to repent, I'm ready to be baptized, and they got saved. So they were saved. Saved from what? Jesus saves is our message, right? 
Jesus saves from what? If we don't tell people how bad it's going to be, how much judgment is coming, people aren't going to even feel a need to get saved. I guarantee you these apostles were talking about the judgment of God. And the Jewish community accepted that. The Jewish community had one story in their history after another that there was a lot of judgment of God. God deals severely with sin. We're in a nation and a culture that has forgot that God judges wickedness and sin severely. And that has to become a more prominent part of our message if we're going to see people even worried about that. In fact, even when we do seem to just scream it out, there's a judgment of God coming. You're under the condemnation of God. Get a lot of yawns. They don't really feel like they're in any danger, you know, because of the pride, because of the, the, the richness of the nation that we're in, because... They don't really see themselves as all that bad. And they just sit there heading for judgment and they don't want to get saved. Death could happen to people at any time. We read about that bridge falling on those people. You were, were some people going out to do an errand or something, right? You know, just going and doing an errand. And then, and then a bridge collapses on them and they're dead. They're gone. It's over. Life's over. They didn't get to finish anything. It's over for them. People go to school 17 are shot. They're dead. It's over with. Their life's over. They're not graduating. They're not going on to college. It's all over for them. And that happens all the time in in ways that are not in the news. All the time. People just die. They just have a heart attack and they just die. They get in a car accident and they just die. They travel somewhere and they're abducted and they're killed and they die. Someone breaks into their home and they die. And we tend to insulate ourselves and say, well, I've lived 35 years. I've lived 42 years. I've lived 61 years. Nothing like that has happened to me over this time. But you don't know the date of your death, do you? Do you know the day of your death? I don't know the day of my death. If death could happen to you at any moment, why would you delay to receive the message of a Savior who gives you eternal life? Why not today bow your knee to him and say, Christ, I receive you as my Savior? Day by day, people were getting saved related to this community. That shows it was constantly going on. In fact, that word adding there is in the imperfect tense in Greek, in Greek, and it means that there was a continual stream of repentant sinners. What does that teach us? That tells us that if you're reading about Peter's sermon and 3,000 people getting saved, and you're saying, you know, we should be seeing that going on all the time, you need to understand that even in this community, that didn't go on all the time. Rather than a big event where 3,000 got saved, the norm for evangelism, the normal way people got saved over the months and over the years, even in this original church, the normal way they got saved is people just going out and talking about their Christian faith, and another guy came forward and got saved, right? You got 3,000 people in the city, and they're out talking about it. Somebody, somewhere, is going to be listening to the gospel and getting saved. We've got, what, 300, 400 here. If you're going out and you're talking about the gospel, or at least attempting to talk about the gospel, we'll see more people get saved. That's the normal way. Not having a big event and seeing 3,000 or 2,000 get saved, but just going out and sharing the gospel wherever you are, whoever you come in contact with. If everyone does their part, if everyone opens their mouth, yes, you'll be rejected. You'll be rejected 10 times before someone even wants to listen to you. But wouldn't it be worth it for that one person that wants to listen? It's not the gospel concert, we would say today. It's not the crusade necessarily that's going to save more people. It's you. It's the community going out in your normal life sharing about Christ. Please remember the context here that Luke is writing. By mentioning the effects of evangelism at the end of all of these things, all of these descriptions of the community of believers given in verses 42 to 47, and he comes to the end and he says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were getting saved. He's pointing back to the community and he's saying it's the effect of that community of believers, what that had on the community of unbelievers. He's saying it was that dynamic, spirit-filled church in action, that faith that was lived out in the community that God used to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Do you see that? The context is very important for understanding this. Yes, the preaching was powerful. Yes, the doctrine was true. Yes, the apostles were constantly testifying to the truth. But the community of believers themselves was an apologetic. It was a defense of Christianity. It was a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. Mark it down. 
God's word preached is validated by the godly community it produces. God's word preached is validated by the godly community produced. This word is to be received in the hearts and lived out in obedience and joy in community, in community. And when that community is strong, people see that and they respond to the gospel. That's what God did there. We don't need gospel clowns. We don't need professional light shows. We don't need car giveaways. We need attractive Christians in community. You need a transformed community who love, yes, but who are also holy and speak about the holiness of God and the sin that he hates. Have you ever told somebody God hates your sin? but loves you? Have you ever helped them to see that side by side? God hates the way you live. God hates it, but he loves you. He sent Christ to save sinners like you. Would you please respond to a God like that? Think about that. God doesn't like the way you live. There's nothing about your life that impresses him. He's not waiting for you to die to join him in heaven. God has rejected you. Your life is going to die But God still loves you with an eternal love and he has proven faithful to you. Won't you respond? Have you ever told someone that? That is the message that we're trying to embody here as a community. A godly, joyful, energetic congregation. That's the best apologetic that Christ has left in the world. Listen, Easter's coming up soon. We can't show anybody today the empty tomb. We're not even there in Israel. We can't let anybody handle the resurrected body of Jesus like the apostles got to do. We cannot do that at our Easter service, sorry. But what we can show people is the body of Christ on earth. That's what Jesus did. He went up into heaven and then he sent his spirit down into a group of people so he would indwell them. He would would fill them up. And then after he filled them up, he said, that's my body. In fact, when Paul, when his name was Saul, was persecuting the Christians, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What did he say? Me, my body. Those are my people. I'm there with them. I'm present in them. And I I show the beauty of my character in that community, in that church. That's me, in a sense, down there on the earth, living through them, preaching the word through them, reaching the world through them. We could show them that. And when people see that, that's an apologetic. They say, wow, that's not common. That's different. I don't see that anywhere. I I don't hang out with men like that. I don't know women like that. I don't even know kids like that. I don't know a youth group like that. They're just different. What makes them different? And if God's working on their heart, they'll know there's something true about these people. There's something that must be true about that message. The Holman commentary says, what happens to believers who worship, work, and witness for their Lord? The Lord grows the church. Let's not miss the order. First, godly relationships with each other and then growth. John MacArthur says, true evangelism flows from the life of a healthy church. The proper devotion to the duties of the Spirit produces the proper character, which in turn produces a powerful and saving impact on sinners. One of the best evangelism strategies is to develop a church community and events that unbelievers can come to and see us living together, fellowship lunches, whatever they may be, men's events, and they can come out and they can rub shoulders with men and women and kids just doing their normal stuff and say, these people are really different. There's something different about them. Not just on Sunday morning when we have our our best on. And lastly, I know I have a couple more minutes. I've got to say this. Actually, I'm out of time. But I've got to say this. It was the Lord who was adding to their number day by day those getting saved. Do you see that? This is where I would be spending 30 minutes on the sovereignty of God and salvation, and I can't. So it's 30 seconds. God is the one who opens the eyes, draws people, and saves them. You and I can't do that. The Lord added to their number. The Lord may choose at times not to add to the number of the church. The Lord is sovereign in salvation. We may preach the same gospel and see only one person get saved. Or a time may come when we preach the same gospel and a hundred people get saved. It is the Lord who is sovereign over his church and adds to his church the way he wants. This was a church that was not afraid of church growth. 
There's so many now in the conservative churches, they've watched all of the, all of the shenanigans that people have done to get their church to grow, and they, they swing the pendulum the opposite direction, and they say, well, we want to stay small. In other words, we want to stay pure. That's not how this church thought. This church grew. This church was a mega church. This church was outreaching. This church did everything it could do to get the word of God out. The gospel and good doctrine. Teach it everywhere, in the temple, house to house, probably on the street corner where they could. That should be something we adopt also, that we're not looking to stay the same size. Some people say, well, do we want our church to grow or do we want to plant more churches? I always say yes. We want to plant more churches. We want our church to grow. Why would we not want the church to grow? This is Christ's church anyways. It's not ours. And he adds to his number. We're in a different culture. We have a lot of people that transfer from churches because the church they were in was false or it was very weak. That's one way that Christ grows his church. We should also be working hard in evangelism and praying that God will raise up evangelists to lead us in this congregation to grow his church. Sometimes people are into to closing the lid on growth. But if you go through and read the book of Acts, and I don't have time for this, I'll bring it up in some of our other messages. You go to places like Acts 6, 7 or Acts 9, 31 or Acts 13, 49 or Acts 16, 5. And you'll see as Luke wrote the story of the church, he would pause every once in a while. And like a milestone, he would say, and the church was growing and the word of God increased and many more disciples were added and the number of churches increased. And he's stating that all the way along because that is the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ from heaven to grow his church, which is what he wants. God wants church growth. We're not in control of that, but we should be doing everything we can to cooperate with the Spirit of God, to get the word of God out in any means. Their culture, they use the temple, they use house to house. We have media today. We should be using media. We should be using media. We should be using hospitality. We should be using children's events. Anything we can do to arrest the attention of people and get the word of God out to them. We know door-to-door is much less acceptable now in our culture than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. So we need to find those things that God will use. Radio, internet, TV, our own personal lives, neighborhood Bible studies. If that doesn't work, then get in the workplace and do a Bible study in the workplace. Find out where the word of God will be received. It might be in counseling, a counseling ministry. It might be in in some ministry God will put on your heart, but we need to get God's word out in evangelism. I just got to visit the Billy Graham Library down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Their evangelistic association used every media means to get the gospel out. They knew the importance of the message that they held in their hands and they spread it everywhere that they could. Many we need to reach. Many we need to reach. And we need a dedication to do that. We need a dedication not to let the world put us in a little corner and keep our mouths quiet. We need to find a megaphone and we need to get God's word out. We need courage and we need boldness. And if we do that, we will see God adding to his number according to his sovereignty as he pleases, to save some, to draw other people out of bad religion and give them the the doctrine that will lead to eternal life. This should be part of what we are about as Hope Bible Church, something we pray earnestly for in our church. Father, thank you for your people today and thank you for your word. Help our fellowship to continue on even after this worship service. We pray that your word was honored today, that your name was lifted high And that, Lord, you take this word that was preached and you put it into the hearts of people and stir them and continue to build your church. We pray it for Christ's glory's sake. Amen.